When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon, and me as we celebrate the early years with you know that incredible it's an incredible body of work isn't it the early Pink Floyd it goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon goes up to 1972 all the film soundtracks all the Sid stuff stuff you've never heard stuff that no one's ever heard frankly Echoes is the big sort of you Uh, know uh, what is that what would you call it Magnum Opus I love a Magnum don't you I never met Magnum Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Guy. Hello, Gary. How are you? Where are we? Where are we? We're, no, I've, we're I've lost Denver. it. Denver. Denver. We're in Denver. It is getting a bit like that. Well, at least you're in your room. I'm downstairs in the boardroom because I have no internet in my room. There's some sales conference going on outside. Yeah, 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 no, it's tricky. Um, we are in Denver, uh, but we seem to be bouncing around a lot at the moment. We played this little uh, sort of game the other night when we were naming cities that we'd been to and trying to remember what the hotel looked like. And, <laughs> and most people <laughs> couldn't. Gig. Yeah, all the gig. Yeah, it's, it's, it all gets mixed up. The thing is, because we move so fast, this tour moves so fast, impossible to get a fix on anything. I mean, I was just remembering... Like New York was five days ago. Yeah, but it seems like an eternity. I mean, we've we, that's what now, I mean. It's, it, and there's been like there's been four cities since yeah, then. It's yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is with touring is, and I think the most stressful thing is the change. It's every time you enter a, a new hotel room, it's get, getting used to that space, trying to claim that space. Do you know a dog woke me up in the middle of the night outside my room, <laughs> crying outside my room. It was so freaky. It, it, it turns out it's a dog friendly hotel, and the woman across the hall has got a dog. Uh, and must have let it out for some reason. <laughs> um, but but the most the, the only constant is the stage that we walk onto, which is always exactly the, the same same yeah. mapping and the bus, of course. Well, it's also the thing is because it, it's just checking out of your room, which you do every day, is traumatic. It's traumatic. You always think you've left something. You always you know. Yeah. So you have that trauma every day. I'm sure there's people with kind of proper jobs and everything yeah. who are just going. You you know. I'm, yeah. I mean. There's only I mean, so much sympathy you can guy, ask for, isn't there? Really? Our, co- our coal face isn't too hard, is it, really? Do you know what I mean? Anyway, Daryl Jones, a bass player. Daryl Jones. Extraordinaire. I'm just going to sit back and watch the fireworks between two amazing bass players, I guess. Well, I don't know. No, he's a, he's a proper grown-up, can run with scissors and everything. I mean, because I, 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 his career path is extraordinary because he's got this film out, which we watched, and um, there seems to be... Like for most of us, my career followed this quite sort of, if you look at it in the past, it was this quite steady upward curve sort of culminating in Pink Floyd. And once you're there, all the stuff that comes around that, you're already there. But it was a steady curve, whereas him, there seems to be, there's like a chapter missing. Yeah, yeah, straight to Miles Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, straight to Miles Davis, right? And um, so I'm very intrigued to get into that. I know. And so he's Miles, well, but he plays for the Rolling Stones. For he plays sake. for the Rolling what Stones. He's played for the Rolling Stones for nearly 30 years. I mean, he's 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 still not considered part of the band. He's probably still on the payroll. But we all know Daryl from his from his work with the Stones. And and also, you know, he's he played um, on probably the best Sting album, Dream uh, of Blue Tur- the Dream yeah. of Blue Turtles, and um, and Madonna. He's toured with. Uh, and and uh, and so we've got so much in common. So much in common. Is he five string or four string? He's four string, isn't he? He's four string. He, he goes five. But I mean, you know, he's a jazzer. He's jazz. Jazzers. Are, I mean, jazzers don't go five. They go straight yeah, to sort of he, twelve. He's on this show <laughs> to talk rock. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I've been sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. It's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's Get a, good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Ah! Oh, he's on, he's muted, he's on, he's muted. We can't see him, can't hear him. He's there, oh, he's on, he's off. Video, video. Yay! Yay! Daryl! Can, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, I can oh, see. Great. And hear you. Wow, that looks not. Are you in France, Daryl? No, no, no. I'm in, in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. Oh, you're just no, on the I road. Was, oh. I was in France a couple of days ago. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Hello, we're man. in Thank Denver. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, oh, man. Real pleasure. Real pleasure. We're in Denver. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Cool. We got, yeah, we got we're on the tonight. we're on the road. We play with Nick Mason uh, yeah, you know, cool, from the cool. Floyd. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, so we're, yeah, cool. we're, yeah. We're, we're doing that. And you're doing podcasts from the road. You guys are. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're we're mate. We tell him we're at it. Responsible, responsible musicians. That's exactly what we are, Dale. Oh wow! Well, talking of responsible musicians, because you and I met uh, backstage oh. in. Paris. Uh, we're introduced by my dear friend Chuck Lavelle. Oh wow! Okay. Um, okay. Right. And you were telling me about a bass you designed. Yeah, man. I've got stuff all around here, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, you know all of this stuff. This is a guitar. Uh, what was the one you designed, though? Oh, oh, the the one I designed is this one. It's you know, it's a, it's a Fender. You know, more than anything, it's a Fender type instrument, but. It's got a little little booty, Kurt. you know. Nice. Yeah. Oh, it has. It's got a it's got a bum. You know, bass bass got to have some bottom, right? You know. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe it's taken this long and you to come up with that. Well, you know, it's one of those things, you know. Because you you guys both have Chuck Lavelle in common, don't you? Because Chuck plays with David Gilmour, you play with yeah, David Gilmour, Chuck plays with the Stones, you play yeah. with the Stones. Yeah. So Chuck's the the kind of common ground here. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Great keyboard. Man, I just watched this. I just watched his documentary. It's incredible, man. Really incredible. He's done one. Yeah, he's got a documentary that's really beautiful. I think it's the Tree Man. But anyway, the Chuck Lavelle, yeah. well, it's incredible. He's he's uh, such a you know a. He used to uh, do things when we're on tour, right? The thing is, he'd do things like. He and, and like in the bar after the gig, rather than oh, this is like some lawyer I met or some musician. It would be like this is the EU minister for forestry. For- yeah, right. You know. <laughs> and then and then he would go. He went off one day and he sent me some pictures. Said, "Hey, guy, I just did this thing. What do you think?" And he, he went and he gave a concert at the steel chainsaw factory. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And he's a, he's a, he's on a podium, right, at a grand piano, surrounded by all these people, and just thousands of chainsaws. And I was just thinking, yeah. if you just looked at that picture with no <laughs> idea of the content, you go, what "The fuck is going on here?" <laughs> Hang on, I am quite I'm quite confused because yeah. I was thinking like the tree man. Then he's into loving and hugging trees. I mean, you can't get more anti-tree than a chainsaw. No, no, he's, right. he has two massive sort of reservations. He's a great tree conservationist. Yeah, he's a tree conservationist. So yeah. he. Rose trees, and he's one of the two plant egg, two oh, ex plantations down in you know. Yeah, no, he's like, got yeah, no, he's coming with Quite a arboretum. Yeah, quite a. No, 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 bigger than yeah. that, bigger than that. Yeah, no, he's he's got quite a quite a quite a thing. I mean, in the, the the you know the former president Jimmy Carter is in the is in the doc. That's right. You know, so he's doing some great things, man, and uh, yeah, 
and 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 just you know killer killer musician as you so we, we watched yeah. we watched your documentary in the blood it's great i, I mean yeah. you know how how did it all come about who who directed it this guy eric uh, hamburg who uh he was he was involved with uh, oliver stone in the nixon film because uh, eric hamburg his he's out of uh out of politics he was assistant to um Oh my God! What is it? Uh, uh, one of the guys who ran for ran for president a few years back. Um, I'll think of his name. Democrat, I hope. Yes. Um, and uh, <laughs> Should, shouldn't give my away my political leanings. <laughs> over, but, but yeah. But that uh, was from Chicago. We know who comes from Chicago. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah my, my 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 political affiliations are probably pretty clear, considering yeah, where yeah, I'm yeah. from. You know. We're um, on the same page here, mate. Yeah, but uh, you yeah, know, this he uh, he you know he's a real big Stones fan, the director Eric, and he I guess had been you know through them watching you know when I came on and and had been watching my career and just said, hey man, I think we should do a documentary about you, and I was like. I haven't done enough yet. <laughs> I mean, I was like, it's the, it's the, the, you know, the, the Chicago second city kind of syndrome where you just never feel like you've done enough, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but you know, he, you know, yeah. he's got incredible bona fide, bona fide. So I, I said, you know, how do you say no to that? You know, such a thing. You know, so. And how long did he follow you around for? Oh man, it's you know, it took us eight years to finish. Actually, we did the first interviews almost eight years ago, I think. And, uh, because the saddest thing about the about the documentary is obviously you know this was before Charlie had died and seeing Charlie beautifully talking about you yeah. and and seeing him looking so well as yeah. d- d- talking on the on, on, on the documentary yeah. mm-hmm. it, that's it's been tough that yeah no that, that 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 that's been a tough part of you know the last few years man it was uh, exciting to get back to you know to uh, to the to touring after you know the, the COVID years. But it was really sad that, you know, that he wasn't along with us. But because you must have had that, you know, that whole that jazz connection, which is because that was as, you know, people said that's why the Stones always swung like they do, you know. Yeah, no, man, he was uh, just such an extraordinary musician and and person, you know, just uh, I just watched a video of uh, him being interviewed, I guess, about the time. It must have been right before I joined the band. But uh, yeah, so he looks so elegant and so handsome, man. He's you know, that's one that, I, that that hadn't occurred to me until a couple of nights ago. Not only was he an incredibly you know beautiful dresser, but he's also a really handsome guy. But it's true, isn't it? What you say, guy, you know. And in a way, he Charlie's got quite a lot in common with Nick Mason as well. Mm-hmm. That sort of slightly jazz mm-hmm. influence, yeah. Playing. That loping, that loping in and out, of yeah. three, four, mm-hmm. kind of yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, just, but it's an English thing, I think, in a way. Hmm. Apparently, you have <laughs> shoes in common as well. Yeah, man, he took me to his to his shoe, you know, to his shoemaker, George Cleverly, in London, and I've uh, I've got oh, George. Oh, okay, let me make a note of that. Is that, <laughs> is that German? Yeah, yeah. Is that German Street or somewhere? Uh, oh, it, it's oh. in that little archway. It's in that little yeah, oh, right, Burlington. exactly in the Burling, yeah. Burlington. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Burlington Arcade. Burlington yeah. Arcade. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're not we're not sponsored by yeah, them. Don't go once you George Glass. Yet. He'll, he'll he'll take care of you. Yeah. And how how was it really? You know the the shift to now you're playing with Steve Jordan in the band and because uh, because in a way there's it's bittersweet, isn't it? You, you know you're excited that you can still go out, but yeah. To not have Charlie there has been been a, been a very difficult situation. How how are you fitting in with Steve? Well, I you know Steve and I go way back. As a matter of fact, you know Steve and Steve Jordan and Charlie Drayton are the guys kind of who were my entree onto the rock and roll scene. You know, I heard what they were doing with Keith Richards on the Talk Is Cheap record and thought, oh wait a minute, because I had been doing kind of the electric jazz thing, Miles and and Herbie Hancock's and step you know steps ahead and that's that stuff. And uh, and I'd done Sting, but I hadn't really done you know too much more of of the you know the rock side. And so, uh, but playing with Steve, man. So you know he he and I go as I was saying he and I go back. It's you know it's the next best thing I have to say. Absolutely the next best thing to playing with Charlie because he's such a student of this music, you know. And you know it's almost like seeing the world from you know someone fresh's eyes. You know we've taken you know. We've looked back on some of the some of the recordings. We've looked back on some of the live things before I was in the band, since I've been in the band, and and so we're we're having a little a fresh look at the at the music, and and uh, I definitely you know I, I commend him on, you know he's just trying to get it right, man. He's really trying to. Get it right. 
So it's it's exciting. It's really exciting. And he's an incredible musician and got a great feel and and uh because you're you're whole growing up man in chicago and of course the very fact that you're chicago which of course is mecca for the stones yeah right exactly because yeah. for the stones all roads lead to chicago yeah. right yeah. so yeah. and and yet and and yet you are a part of this you know from again from the documentary all the music you grew up around which is brilliant which is literally everything that was on offer yeah and I get the you know, your family had a lot to do with that, right? Yeah, no, I was Mark, really, you know, yeah. and yeah. it's actually very much reflected in the music you're making with your band. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, your dad was a drummer, right? Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he, he didn't play a lot uh, professionally, but um, just, just was always practicing in the house and taught me basically how to. God, re- how annoying. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's funny because you know what you grew up listening from, listening to from the child from from the time of your child. You, you know, it's comforting in a way, you know, you you come in the house, you know, shopping with mom, you know, Saturday, Saturday evening and you know, it's like, oh, oh, great. Dad's in the basement, you know, doing his thing, you know. You have a great quote in the sh- in the film where you say the music I play is my childhood. Yeah, no, I mean, because think about, you know, in the 60s, I grew up, I was born in 61. So the music of the, you know, the 60s and early 70s, man, that's it's a gold mine. And, um, you know, and, and then and music wasn't quite as segregated then as it is now. I mean, because, you know, the Stones were on, on black radio. Uh, Elton John was on black radio, mm-hmm. you know, wow. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, all the, you know, uh, Angie was probably, to be honest with you, you know, Angie was probably the first big song that I was, I mean, Satisfaction, you know, but I was, you know, four years old when yeah, Satisfaction yeah, yeah. came out. So, um, but yeah, the Beatles, James Brown, and there was still blue stuff on, you know, some blue stuff on on the radio at that time. So, um, it, you know, plus in the in the music scene in Chicago as well was also very fertile because you were doing, you know, church gigs, you were doing nightclubs, you were doing, you know, uh, bar mitzvahs, you're doing all this different kind of stuff and playing all these different kinds of music. So it was a really fertile, you know, kind of learning ground. Because you had, you had music at your school from a very early age. Didn't Incredible you? music program amazing. at my school. Yeah, Incredible yeah. music program. I mean, like anything that you wanted to get into, you were, you know, there was an orchestra and you were, you were, uh, the, the, the director was like, Daryl used to write some charts for the orchestra. You know, I was like, what? You know, but the opportunities were there, you know, to play a lot of different kinds of music and to, uh, and to write music and to, you know, just to understand more about music and to spend all day from the, you know, from really from my sophomore year, there were six, you know, five, six, seven uh, periods of music. So why is that? Because it was it was a, a state school, wasn't it? It was a, as you say, a public school. It was a public school, but it was just known for this music department. It was also known for football. There's some really great, you know, American football players that came out, basketball players that came out. It was such a big school. I think the my my, my uh, freshman class was 1,200 students. Right. And so wow. the whole school wow. was about 4,500 students. So it was a huge school and great band, great orchestra, great vocal department. And so uh, it was a vocational school. So your, if your vocation was music, then you really learned music in that way, as if you were learning, you know, car mechanics or whatever. Now, a guy always talks about the reason he's the bass player is like he thinks a lot of this is true of all bass players is there was already a guitar player in the band is that what you, that's what you say is it? that you know that wasn't the case for me i was a bass player from the very beginning though i did start i, 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 I was but only oh. because my parents wouldn't get me an electric guitar oh really well, why? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I don't know if you, you remember in the movie i talk about i didn't really know the difference i knew that there was a bass that's right you you had you had yeah. a guitar which but that must have been amazing because you you were learning on a six string but just yeah. playing four strings right which must, but that must have that gives you such a days that's like you know how pr- the brazilian football team practice with a smaller ball yeah oh wow yeah. so that's the same that. thing yeah okay. that's the same uh-huh. thing <laughs> right okay yeah but what made what made the bass fall into your hands then it was the guy you know i saw this talent show i saw the guy who i knew playing i decided i'm gonna ask him to teach me to play the guitar and when I walked up to him and said, hey, man, I want you to teach me to play the guitar. He said, I don't play the guitar. Well, he says, you know, you, you want to play lead guitar or you want to play bass guitar? And I said, well, what do you play? And he said, I play bass guitar. And I said, well, then I want to learn how to play bass guitar. And that was basically when I found out there was a guitar that had four strings. I didn't know that. I thought all guitars had six strings. And I thought the bass was this thing 
that from yeah. my dad's records, from Miles Davis records and, you know, Count Basie and all of that yeah, stuff. I didn't like know that. there was an electric bass guitar. I didn't know that that instrument really existed. I mean, I was nine years old, so, you know. So, no, that's how what's I funny. Do you know what's funny, though, is that when the electric bass guitar first came along, it was actually, it was jazzers who adopted it first. Rock and exactly. rollers still played stand-up. That's it? right, yeah. that's true. It's actually Lionel Hampton's bass player was the right, first Right, exactly, guy that's right. Player. Monk Montgomery wow. was one of the first yeah. guys. Who was Lionel Hampton? Is it, is it the guy, tell player. me. The vibe vibe player, player who, uh, you know, who was, you know, around, or he was around in the 40s, I guess, and and, and was still, was, actually was still touring when I started with Miles in the 80s. So he had a long, long and storied career. When okay. I was touring with Miles, I love that that just sits there. I, mean, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Come I know. on. I know, Miles Davis. I, I know. mean, that is literally Let... the, the pinnacle by which everything is everything is measured. You know, no, man. We're, we're, we're going to get to Miles. We're, we're going to get yeah. to Miles. Mm -hmm. I, I, but, but you obviously took up the bass at the same time that the bass started becoming the lead instrument in funk music, right? Oh yeah, definitely. It was, it was, I, I call it the second, you know, bass renaissance or, you know, the, <laughs> uh, nice. because, you know, Jamerson, you know, in the 60s Jameson. and then in the 80s, yeah, with cats like, you know, Bootsy and Larry Graham. And, Larry Graham. You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All, you know, all those guys and, you know. This, but because I, I would always say, because apart, because jazz was kind of where a lot of the, especially from, uh, things like Kind of Blue, where sort of modern bass playing as we know it mm -hmm. kind of comes from. Because I would say, Daryl, I don't know if you'd agree, that actually it was left to Jameson and I would say McCartney mm -hmm. to actually write the book on what kind of pop bass playing was. I agree with you. I agree with you. I oh, good. Absolutely. Yeah, but would you say that same thing to a certain extent? Because we were saying yesterday, Guy, how... Because there's this, there's this strange interview in, in your documentary, Daryl, where, where it's Mick obviously in the in the uh, 80s and late 80s, and he's saying, well, it's not very hard to play bass in the Rolling Stones, right. you know? And I think he was probably a bit upset that that, that that Bill Wyman had just left. But Bill set a certain Again. benchmark. Bill was, a brilliant, Bill was a brilliant bass player. They were brilliant yeah. lines. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, man, because whenever we play, wherever we're at, if we're in touring Europe, whenever you go into stores, when the Stones are in town, there's stones on the radio. So you're hearing all of these songs. And I remember hearing um, hearing Start Me Up and going, wow, we don't play that the way that they played it back then. And Bill is so funky on that. The same thing is oh, true. Oh yeah, his space is spacing. Oh man, and, and the same yeah. thing is true for what he plays on um, on Miss You. The way he oh, no, no, messes that's, around with the- It's one of the great the, disco lines. It's one man, of the great the disco messes, lines. Yeah, the way he messes around with the downbeat, upbeat, boom, boom, ding, boom, ding, boom, ding, boom, ding, boom, ding, the way he messes around with that is brilliant. It really yeah. is brilliant, you know? So I would say I would have to add him and- uh, Yeah, yeah. A, a bunch of the guys who we heard, because really when you think about it, the guys who were on the radio in, in those years, in the 60s, you know, late, you know, in the 60s and 70s, all of those guys taught us how to play the bass. Yeah, you know? okay. Um, I'd also, I don't want to get too muso because I would say another, just on Bill, well, that, well, mm. that actually what makes the riff of Satisfaction work mm. is the harmony he's playing on the bass. Mm -hmm, that's true, yeah. Because it, it's not what you think it is. No, it's not you what you think it is. You you think, yeah. oh, everybody's doing that thing. He's playing something yeah. else. He's playing yeah. something else, exactly. Mm -hmm. But I, it, was, it was Stanley Clark, wasn't it, that really turned you on though Darryl. yeah he was definitely and, 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 i mean but that i mean i remember buying some of those records when i was a a, a kid and i was getting into what was called jazz funk or mm -hmm. ja jazz well jazz fusion, funk, it was yeah. fusion well, oh, no, well, you, well i never i never said the word fusion when i was when i, when I was a <laughs> yeah, teenager yeah, but, jazz rock. and he was he was all i i, call, I kind of pretended i liked liked him but he was so difficult it was like m musical maths at times wasn't uh, it you know I mean? a friend of mine lent me that record the one with the stanley clark record with him holding the bass. yeah yeah and i ruined that record learning that stuff because basically what i did was i took the 30 you know i took the album and put it on 16 and it's a little bit out of tune yeah. so i retuned the bass so that i could learn those lines at half speed you know so I agree with you. It was very difficult. It was well. That was when I just started playing the bass, and and everything was about Stanley Clark. Everything yeah. was about, and I, and I was just thinking, I, 
Really? Is that I, I, is that what I have to do? Because I can't. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I should play something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it was it was daunting. And then Jocko came along, and it just seemed like yeah. an, yet another, you know, another yeah, another layer, you know. Yeah. So what about the, what about what band what bands did you form then as a kid, and what kind of music were you playing locally? Well, um, a lot of funk stuff. Because uh, you ended up playing with Clay, huh? Otis Clay. You ended up playing. Otis Clay. Yeah, I played with Otis Clay. And so that was like my soul thing. That was a period where I was playing a lot of soul. And to be honest, I didn't play a lot of blues in Chicago. There were only one or two blues acts that I played with. It was it was soul and with him more than any any anyone else that I, I really started playing that music. And so we played a lot of blues clubs, but it was, you know, it was it was it was soul music. You know, he's very Especially much if you're a, when you're a kid, man, it's like if you look at funk, soul, blues, it's clear what's sexier. Yeah, as a bass yeah. player, really. Yeah, oh yeah, right. Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No, the funk. But, thing but did you was was that your breakthrough for your as far as your parents were concerned? Was it now Daryl's got a job, you know, and he's making some money? He's gonna be a professional musician, or did they want you to be something else? No, no, no. I had all the the support of my parents. They let the bands that I played with all through grammar school and high school rehearse in the basement, which is that's a real commitment. That that lets you know your parents really are behind you if they let the band rehearse in your basement for years and years, you know. So no, I had complete support of my parents and We've know, already got your dad practicing everywhere all You're right, exactly. You know. <laughs> and my mom loved music, you know. As I said in the movie, she took us to see James Brown. Any place she you could take a child to see James Brown between maybe sixty eight and seventy three oh or seventy four. She took us, you know, and so she was a bit cross with you at one of the auditions, wasn't yeah, she? Actually, yeah, actually, it was the re first re the rehearsal for the Otis Clay gig, the first rehearsal when I hadn't learned the material, and she was well, again mean, because the dynamic in in our household was either you're in school or you work, and if and I wasn't in school, you know, I was you know in between you know college classes or or whatever like that, and you know living in the house, and she was like, hey, you got to work. If your work is knowing music and, you know, is playing music, then you got to know what you're doing. You can't can't be slacking. You know, your father doesn't slack, so you got to be, you know, well, you deal with what you're dealing with. Why didn't you know the material, Daryl? Were you not I, that you interested? Know, or again, <laughs> again, we go back to this, like, you know, it wasn't like Stanley Clark. It wasn't hard, you know. It's like, oh, that's like soul. Uh, I can handle that. I can handle that. Until, yeah. <laughs> so you you know, you realize, wow, you know, there you, there is something to that. You do have to, any kind of music, you have to spend some time dealing. Yeah. That's one of the other, you know, major things that I talk about, particularly to students. You can't be looking down your nose at, at anything and and and, want, and and consider yourself playing it authentically. You got to give it some time. You got to give it time. You got to give it respect and uh, and some love in order to be able. Sim to simple and slow is can be the absolute hardest. Can't what did your mother say to you when you got back in the car? I can't believe she just sat what, there watching. what I said. She said, "Listen, you you know you call yourself this yeah. musician." If you're a musician, you don't show up at, at work unprepared, you know? It's like, what are you doing? I know. These are the nightmares that I always have. I mean, every, all musicians have those, you know? Yeah. I'm, I think my most recent one was I was asked to go on stage and play guitar with Queen. Ooh. And, uh, and I took it so for granted, and I walked on, and I hadn't rehearsed a single note. I didn't know where I was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then you don't end, you end up not enjoying what you should be really, really enjoying. That's because right. You're like, that's, that's oh, that's because slap. you're just hanging on. Yeah, yeah. you're just hanging you know, on. Yeah. yeah, you know. But but I guess also the thing is, we're playing with someone like Otis Clay and playing soul. Is you're starting now to learn that the bass doesn't always have to be playing, you know, exactly. thousands of notes. Exactly. That that you had. You know, every bass player just can lay down that groove, get in the pocket, mm -hmm. and uh, and offer something that still contains your personality. Exactly. Were you beginning to find who you were? Yes, I was. By that time, yeah, because I was. That was not long before the Miles thing happened. I was probably nineteen, twenty years old uh, when that happened, and uh, I had kind of been through, I guess, the college. You know, I was away at college in nineteen seventy nine, eighty. I think it was at that point that I realized I'm not going to really make a living playing like Stanley Clark or Jaco Pastorius. I've got to figure out how I play. And and also, um, you just, you know, start to be a little bit more mature about, you know, what the function of the bass and, and even in jazz music that you got to have some, 
you got to have some um, some solidity. You got to make the musicians around you feel like you're you're supporting them. And like you said, and bring your own personality and not somebody else's who you've been. I mean, I think it's in, invaluable to to copy musicians, you know, as you're as you're developing. But eventually you got to get out and, 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 and figure out what it is that's inside you. And and uh, that's how you play, you know, authentically. I think you have to, you know, play. Do, do you know, I had a thing, Daryl, when I was learning, where I was so worried that I thought that if I just learned other people's bass lines, then I wouldn't have my own style. Mm-hmm. So I didn't learn any songs, oh, which wow. is just the stupidest thing in the world. So yeah. I actually have no idea how I learned. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's really an interesting thing because I've, I'm doing the same thing on guitar. I really, I love the guitar. I'm even building guitars, even though I'm a bass player. But I don't know songs on the guitar. So, you know, a couple of times I've been on stage playing guitar, I've been exposed because that's how you teach yourself how to play play an instrument. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Just to move a lot, I don't know if we're moving too fast, but mm-hmm. it's, so I'm sorry, but, but I'm just so excited to get to Miles. Um, because there seems to be like a chapter missing, Daryl. You, you mm-hmm. seem to, it, it's like you're going along and you've got all these gigs in Chicago and you're getting really nicely well-rounded with certain stuff. And then it's Miles. Yeah. <laughs> Were you still living at home? I was still living at home. Yeah, the call came. Tell us the <laughs> tell us the story of the audition. Come on. It's so- well, I mean, you know, I, I literally the phone rings. I pick it up. It's Miles's nephew, who's a good friend of mine. We're playing around town, and he had been in Japan with Miles, um, kind of as Miles's assistant. And they come back, and Miles is you know ready to change the bass chair, and he says, "Miles wants to hear you play over the phone." So I. You know, you've heard the whole story that happens in the movie, but uh, I go to New York. Tell us. Yeah, well, I go out looking for my bass. I'm not even practicing bass. I'm practicing the Chapman stick. I can't find my bass. I go back to the phone. Hold on. I realize it's in the back of my mom's car. And then Vince says, no, you hold on. And then I hear Miles' voice. And he says, when can you be in New York? And I'm just trying not to be too eager, you know. And I said, it was a Monday. I said, I'll be, I could be there Wednesday. And he said, what's going to take you so long? You going to walk, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, oh, you got to no, do no. that voice. You got to do the voice. Oh, you you're gonna, what's going to take you so long? You go walk. Because exactly. <laughs> I love the story. Because, you know, the Herbie Hancock story of his audition. Oh, right. Was, yeah, very, very. The phone rang. And yeah. it went, hello. This voice just went, my place, one o'clock tomorrow. Oh, yeah. And put the phone down. Yeah. Didn't even say, didn't say who it was, where oh, it was, or anything. Like but it's like you know, it's Miles. So what happened when you when you got yeah. to New York? Got to New York, met him at this apartment. I go upstairs. He said before I play a note, he says, "Listen, you know, if if, if this does if this doesn't work out, it's not that you know you you can't play. It's that I'm I'm looking for something else, uh, which is really incredibly sweet when you think about what people think about Miles being this really hard, you yeah. know." mean guy he wasn't at all he was really a sweet guy and he was taking care of me before i played a note so i played uh it was a slow b flat blues he stopped me a couple of times i mean real slow and i played it for a while and and then he stopped me and he said uh play along with this tape and um i played along with the tape for you know for a little while what was the tape 
it was a, it was a board tape of some gigs that they, they had done in Japan, you know, like recent gigs that they'd done. And I guess he was just trying to figure out if I could improvise bass lines for these, you know, for these kind of open jams that they were doing. So mm -hmm. a lot of the, the music at that time was a little bit more open, you know, kind of funk jams. And Witches uh, Brew had already come out, right? Bitches Brew, oh, long time, yeah, long yeah, Bitches Brew. This is the eighties, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so he he'd established this kind of funk, jazz, electric thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you were trying to you were fitting in with. Right, exactly. And so when you when I think when you when I think about you know you're speaking about a kind of gap. Well, I grew up playing funk grooves from James Brown. I grew up playing a little bit of jazz around town, and Sly Stone and Jimi Hendrix and all of these things that really did kind of prepare me for this moment. In addition to that, the guys who I grew up playing with at, who were slightly older, they loved Bitches Brew. So when we jammed, we would try to jam like oh, Miles right. Davis, you know, playing Bitches Brew. So when, you know, I remember the, you know, the, uh, the night, I, the first night I played with him, um, he sent somebody to come and get me and I go in his dressing room and he says, do you have any questions? And I go, no. <laughs> and he kind of laughs, laughs like, Okay, you, you know, you're you just coming on. You never played with anybody, you know, with this, you know, you haven't played in this arena yet. So, but I had really been pre prepared by the musicians that I was playing with. But what about the size of the venues and stuff? Was how was that, you know, was that? I, I guess I played a, a round enough where that didn't really, yeah, yeah, didn't really affect me. And then, and then, yeah, no, that didn't, I, I don't know. I, 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 in a way, I've always been more comfortable on stage than even, you know, you're in the club and, you know, I'm, you know, 16 years old. I'm on stage and I'm playing and I know what I'm doing. I got to put the bass down and walk into the club. That's when I'm uncomfortable. No, I agree. I've always said it's like it's uh, 50,000 people you don't know is so much easier than 50 people you do. Exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There's some great uh, archive in the film of you and Miles on yeah. stage together, mm. and what's so beautiful is you're you're you know you're, you're a handsome young boy, mm. and you're, he's right up against you with his with his blowing mm. blowing downwards with his with his uh, trumpet, yeah, and and you're just like staring at him, trying to weave with him, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. That that that's quite magical. Just explain what was going on between you and Miles. No man, so it was the it was the strangest thing. He would stand so close to me sometimes. And I'm, I'm I'm there and I'm playing, and sometimes it just occurred to me like it's fucking Miles Davis, you know, <laughs> you know, and you know we would be you know he'd be doing stuff like and I'd be and almost like we were like sparring a little bit, you know, and uh, or sometimes he would talk, he would so touch. I didn't go to bed last night. You know what I mean? You know, I'd be like, Miles, we, you know, we could put, no, one more song. No, two more. No, three more. You know, he was, uh, and people would always ask me, what were you guys talking about? And I'm like, you wouldn't believe if I have, if I tell you, I have to kill you. <laughs> you know? And I'm gathered, I'm gathered, I gather they're not set arrangements either. Well, I was going to say, this is the thing, the thing with Miles. Okay, it's not like some legendary artist where you've got to go and learn the catalog or whatever, because Miles just plays where he's at. Right. Am I, am I right? There were some loose arrangements and they were yeah. generally, um, you know, depending on, you know, a line that he would play that would lead us to this place or there's something somebody else would somebody would play that would lead us to the next section. There were a few songs where we played, you know, just the song, you know, particularly a little bit later, you know, after I'd been in the band for a while. But yes, some of them were just kind of open jams and you'd like hope that you found a bass line that worked with all these deep the keyboard player and guitar players were playing. I mean, it was uh, pretty magical, man, you know. And you recorded with him as well. You did Decoy. Yeah, Decoy and You're Under Arrest, those two records I did with him. And there's a bunch of bootleg stuff and, and some stuff from live gigs. There's some stuff from Montro. There's some stuff from uh, the, the uh, jazz festival in Montreal. And what I, happened? How come you, you left? Well, I left the first time. Um, I had um, recorded with Sting. The, the Dream of the Blue Turtles record. His best yeah. album, mate. Yeah, yeah Sting's album, yeah. first album after he left the police. And... Um, no, it's best, I said. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No yeah. question, no question. Oh, man, but, you know, some of that belief. Fa amazing songs. You know, yeah, 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 really great stuff. It just looked to be like something that I didn't want to miss. You know, what was coming after we recorded that record to a world tour. Um, they were just talking about doing a documentary. 
And I guess I just didn't want to miss it. And I thought it was maybe a chance to um, to widen my horizons a little bit. And so I went to Miles and told him, man, I, I, you know, I want to really want to do this thing with him, um, but I want to come back. And and like I say in the movie, he told me, he says, I don't know if that we'll be able to do that. But um, but he gave me his blessing finally. And finally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It was a, there That's was... a real testament, though, that you did come back. But here's the, the, the Sting thing. This is really, really interesting mm-hmm. in that Sting was someone who started. He used to play in big bands and stuff up in Newcastle and everything. And he came, you know, he's this incredibly gifted songwriter and comes up through the whole kind of new wave thing and the pop world becomes this giant pop star. And right. then once he gets to that platform, he uses that success mm-hmm. and that reach to completely opposite of most people to get what you guys have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, to, to kind of embrace this world of jazz, which was incredibly risky for someone. Which is, oh, no, definitely. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, I mean... Police were the biggest band in the world in what yeah. 1982. You know, he had a certain amount of of influence and 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 cachet and and stature in the uh, in 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 the business. It was it was edgy though. I mean, for him to choose to use these elements yeah. from this you know kind of um, you know electric jazz thing and to put it with what he was doing, which is which is I think what he's really great at. Sting takes some some Brazilian music and he takes what he does and he puts those two things together and creates this kind of other thing. And he's done it with reggae and he's done it with ska and he's done it with with pop and he's done it with all of these different kinds of idioms of music. And it's all it's all him. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, that's him trying to do this. No, that's him Mm. ingesting this and and, and using his thing and coming out with something that's almost like yet another thing but how did he know about how did he know about you at that point did he did he heard you with miles um uh, branford marcellus who he met um you know at some point after he decided i guess he was leaving the police um and he said listen i'm gonna put a band together and um but i'm not gonna play bass I'm, i i don't want to be encumbered by that so i'm gonna sing and play some guitar and branford and i had just recorded decoy with miles and also branford was around branford and Mar- and, and went more around when i first played with miles his first 10 or 12 gigs probably half a dozen gigs we did together him with herbie hancock and vsop and me with miles and so we kind of got to be friends during that period uh hanging out in new york when we weren't on weren't into, on tour and recording this this decor record with Miles, so we were hanging out, and I guess you know he liked the way I played, and and told Sting, hey man, if you're not gonna play bass, we should get you know we should get Daryl. But were you were you were you coming to that? Uh, did you come to that Sting album with Sting's bass playing in mind, trying to mm-hmm. get a vibe of what he would have done? No, well, I mean he had written the songs, so the bass lines that he had written were were therein. You know, he would come to me. When I, you know, I learned the song and learned his bass line. I remember uh, uh, "Set Them Free" and learning his bass line, and, uh, and and him saying to me, "You know, it's not written in stone, man. You don't have to, you don't have to play that." And I would kind of, yeah, man, but it's working. So I'm not going to change it just to change it. If it's if what you wrote is working, then then there's no need to change it. Now I did change the way I played that song. I used my thumb and you know and, and did some slapping on it and stuff, but it was a great bass line. And so it was more. His influence was more from the writing side. He writes great bass lines, man. I mean, he writes. He's a know. fantastically reductive bass player, and yeah. he writes really, really great lines that that are the absolute essence. The yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. That, I always remember, even in the early days of the Police, there was a thing with Sting where, where he wrote these lines. Anyone could play them, but you're thinking you can tell this guy can really, really play. Or yeah, really no, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Real functional. And sometimes, you know, some of that reggae stuff was you know, some of that yeah. stuff is pretty, pretty cool, man. So um and he, and and again, you know, he really did um give me space to kind of do what I wanted to do. But you know, on in a number of number of occasions, man, it was like, I'm not changing that. That that baseline is working. But now you get now I guess you're getting a reputation in, in pop music too, mm. as as a player that can diversify if you like and and you get a call from Madonna yeah that was a number that was a few years later um but yeah I uh that was and you know it's kind of interesting because I was kind of looking to do something else I was like I, I would really like to have a because I didn't really think about Sting as a pop artist I thought about him more as like a 
a rock guy who, you know, a more broad, you know, kind of rock guy, bigger palette. Intellectual. Yeah. Uh, so Madonna was my, like my, 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 uh, my move into the real pop world. You know. Well, we have that in common because I yeah. played with Madonna as well. Oh, yeah, right. No, when, when did you when did you play with her? Uh, it was after you. I think. Well, I, I did the Like oh. a Prayer album and the Breathless. I did the song Like a Prayer. And um, okay, oh, dig, man. So that was right before me because I actually oh, was it? I auditioned on a playing Like a Prayer. Oh, oh my God! No, so no. hang on. So no, hang no. on. My this is a no, no, I don't but yeah, Like you, a Prayer. Or, do, do, you auditioned do, with do, Guy do, do, Pratt's baseline. Dig that. Who knew that? Yay. <laughs> yeah, no, and you know, it's funny because that bass line was really, I dug that, but doom. The middle section, the middle section is one of the proudest things in my life. Oh, yeah, 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 that's great, that's great. But even the, you know, the, the beginning bass line is pretty, pretty nasty too, man. Yeah, Pat wrote that, Pat Leonard wrote that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Middle bit's mine, middle bit's all mine. <laughs> all mine. Okay, that's enough, that's yeah. enough. You've had your moment in the sun. Yeah. Um, but Darren, what was it like being on the road with her? Because that's an amazing setup, isn't it? Yeah. Although, although saying that, nothing is like the Stones. But yeah, no, 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 it was great. It, it was really great, man. But it's kind it of like being in a musical or something, isn't it? A bit. Well, it's, in the, well yeah, a little bit more because, you know, yeah. she had like, you know, a dozen dancers. Yeah. Um, and who had also never been on the road. So that was, you know, com kind of comical. Uh, but they were all really sweet guys. And and uh, and it was, and you know, a great band, man. They're, you know, Luis Conte was in that band percussion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jonathan Moffat, who... Oh, Sugarfoot, Sugarfoot. You know, best him. show drummers, you know, walking around. Uh, David Williams, the late, great David Williams on guitar. My, my, he was my buddy, yeah. Yeah, yep. man. Fantastic. Great cat. And uh, Kevin Kendrick and Jay Wendy. Yeah. And uh, Nikki Harris and... Uh, Oh my God, I'm spacing on the... Oh, and uh, what's her name on the BVs? Ah, ah, I played on her album. Oh, so very... Well, then it, well, it, well, it in, so it sounds like we both knew. Yeah. Were you in the, were you in the, were you in the, in the dock? Was, the, was that the Truth or Dare tour? Yeah, uh, I was on the Blind Ambition tour. All right. Yeah, yeah. But it was great, man. It, it, it was incredible watching her put the show together and just all of these elements that she was juggling and... And looking at, you know, she would, go, you know, videotape the, the whole show and then she would go back and talk to the lighting guy and then go back and talk to, you know, what the, you know, the stage guys who, you know, this should be moving here. She was, I was surprised that she was that hands on. Oh, no, it's amazing because All recording with her, recording with her, we used to do, we'd have the whole band, she'd do a guide vocal mm -hmm. as we were playing the song down for the first mm -hmm. time. She mm -hmm. would then have notes for everyone. Yeah. She'd done a vocal and clocked everything everyone yeah. was doing. She was right. amazing like that. Yeah, yeah, she's... She, but, you know, like like the way, um, you know, I mentioned earlier about you being up close and watching Miles mm -hmm. play and then playing with him and moving with him. We use that word weaving, which I know is a, a Keith word. Mm -hmm. But uh, but were you, could you feed back off of Madonna's dancing? Was that something that... Oh, yeah, no. For you? There's a couple of little spots, man, in... Uh, on the show where there was a, there was a, I forgot what song it was, but there was one, one thing I was kind of up on a platform and David was on another platform. And then uh, Luis and Jonathan were in like middle of the back, back, back end of the stage. And then there were two more, you know, kind of little platforms. So at one point, these guys were doing this, this, this part of the, the, the uh, choreographer where they did this walk across the stage and they did this kind of, you know, little bump thing and then walk back. And I was just, I was in rehearsal. I was thinking to myself, I could do that dad stuff. So I just stepped down off of my, off my little perch and did the thing with them and then came back and then back up onto my perch. And she didn't say, don't do it. So I kept doing it. <laughs> just that kind of stuff, just interacting in that way was something that was, uh, that was really great, man. It was. It... But but I meant sort of letting her as, as a kind of a conductor yeah. of yeah. what you play and how you feel. The energy coming off of her, I guess, could, would help your playing. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Listening in a in a really active way, and using your you know your vision to to help you listen more and to help you feel what is it that this artist is trying to do right now, and how can I support them, and how can I help mm -hmm. them do that. So that's, yeah, that's that's par for the course with, with everyone that I've played with. 
Yeah, but that, that's like you, said, but you just described sort of the perfect bass player, really. Was it from there back to Miles? Or was it, no? No, actually. No, you finished. Because that would be a funny headspace one. Yeah, it was Miles, Stang, <laughs> and then back to Miles. And then I played with Herbie Hancock. And then wow. I played with Peter Gabriel. And then I played again another summer with Herbie Hancock and then Madonna. And, right. uh, and after that, the next, next big thing was, has been the Stones. But I guess we should talk about your, you becoming a Rolling Stone. Although, although as Mick actually ever officially, you're not officially in the band, even though you've been playing with them for 30 years. Well, uh, I mean, it know. took Ronnie about 20 years, I think, to be. No, it took him longer than that. 25, yeah, I think it was 25 years or something like that. But I play the bass the best that I can every night with those guys. I can't imagine that if I'm in the band, I play any better. So the rest of it is kind of for them to, you know, it's, it's almost like a that, that, That's them. how I feel with Pink Floyd. It's just like, yeah. it's just, just the association is fine. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Just, you know, you know, I, who else, who else was on the shortlist? Do you know who you're up against? Uh, I do know that, um, that um, Hutch Hutchinson auditioned. Um, uh -huh. uh, Daryl Johnson from the Neville Brothers auditioned. Uh, uh, Joey Spompanato from NRBQ audition, oh, right. all of whom could have easily gotten the gig. I think they, they're all great, great players. And a number of other guys. There's a number, number of other guys. But it's funny how it's all kind of super yeah. hot muso guy. It's all yeah, you know, not rock and roll guys. Yeah. I'm sure there were a number of them too, but I don't, mm. I don't know. Those, you know, those, yeah. there, there were names that I, that I probably am not, wasn't as familiar with, but, but yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah. They, they, you know, they auditioned, I think. What was the call? What was the call? That was another weird one, man, because somebody called me, a friend of mine, Sandy Toronto, called me and said, hey, man, Bill Wyman's leaving the Stones. And we were like, yeah, Bill Wyman's been talking about leaving the Stones. He says, no, man, I think he's really going this time. And he said, well, should I, you know, should I get a number for you? And I said, well, yeah, I guess so. And he gets a number. I call the number and I say, hey, I heard that, that uh, you know, Bill Wyman's leaving. I'm a bass player. There's a list. I'd love to get on it. And they said, okay. Oh, so you, you, were, know, you were proactive then? You were I, proactive. Yeah, I did call. Yeah, I did yeah, make yeah. that call. And uh, and a few months later, I get a call back. And they said, well, listen, there looks like there are going to be some auditions in New York. Uh, they would like to fly you out and, and have you audition. And I later talked to uh, Pierre de Beauport, who is the guy, the tall guy you see handing the, tech, yeah, the yeah. guitars. He, he told me that. Uh, he says, well, you remember when you did the, the, the movie with Stang, you met... Mick and I said, yeah, I do remember that. It's matter, matter of fact, Mick had mentioned that when I went into audition. I uh, said, remember we met, you know, when you were playing with Sting, and I said, yeah, of course. And um, so yeah, I, I went in, auditioned, and played through a bunch of, you know, what were the songs, stuff like that. Were they all there? Because this is the famous thing, there. isn't it? With yeah, the no, no. Is that people, people go to do things with the Stones and kind of Charlie's there and no, 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 show no, no, no. a couple of days. No, 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 no. They were all there. Um, Mick said to me when I walked in, he said, "Listen, Daryl, if you don't know the, if you don't know the songs, we'll teach you the songs, and then we'll have the audition." It was very informal, wow. very kind of you know loose and 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 very just just a very mellow. They were very cool, very nice. And uh, well, I guess yeah. from Otis Clay, you you'd done your homework this time. I had done my homework as much as you can because, of course, I'd your gone mom out was. I gone out and bought. Your mom wasn't outside. No, I mean, I your mom yeah, wasn't right, outside. exactly. Yeah, but she's still in my head, you know. Uh, yeah. But I, I'd gone out and bought a bunch of best of records, you know, trying to cover all the hits and all the most popular songs. And after like putting on two or three discs, it's like there's no way I'm going to learn all of this. Mm -hmm. So I just decided, well, man, just go in and play the best you can. And then I got a call from in the camp, a guy named Tony Russell, who's been taking care of Keith's, Keith, Keith's assistant for many, many years now. It's Percy. Uh, he called and said, listen, you're going to play, you know, Brown Sugar, uh, Tumbling Dice, Miss You, you know, so forget all that other stuff and, you know, just work on that. So I did for the night before the uh, night before audition, I did, you know, work on those things a little bit, kind of got familiar with those songs. And those are the songs that we end up, I ended up auditioning on. I mean, in the documentary, uh, you know, Keith, talks so beautifully about you and how much he loves you and 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 so does Mick um 
But the person you needed to impress the most, in a way, was Charlie, wasn't it? Because you were going to be the rhythm engine. Well, it's interesting because that's just, you know, as a bass player, that's kind of the first order of business for me. And hopefully it doesn't take a long time to establish that connection with the drummer. Sometimes just a few, as you know, just a few bars. And you can realize, oh, he feels this way and that works with with what I do. And so that was, you know, my approach to whomever I played with. Um, but I will say that I didn't go into the audition saying to myself, play, play the keys, play the keys, play the, you know, it wasn't like, I just thought if I, if I can rock with Charlie, then that's a good start. That's a good start. That's at least, you know, that establishes that I know how to work in the engine room, as Keith said. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I said, after that happens, then I can start to let other people in and, and, and start to pay more attention. So playing with Charlie and playing well with him was for me the first order of business. So that was the first thing that I did. Uh, what, did you get a did you get a sense from Charlie that kind of that it was happening? You know, it's interesting because we played. Uh, I started trying to get a sound. I was playing lick and stick from uh, James Brown, and I was just getting a sound. I as soon as but before I knew it. Keith is, um, uh, Charlie started playing and Keith started, you know, and we were jamming on Lickin' Stick, James Brown's Lickin' Stick. Uh, and uh, and that felt cool, but then we played the first tune, I don't remember what it was, Brown Sugar or, 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 or one of those tunes. And after we played the song, Charlie stood up and kind of started to pace a little bit. And I remember thinking <laughs> to myself, Mm, either that's a good thing or it's a bad thing. <laughs> but it's I, definitely, I, a, it's definitely a thing. <laughs> yeah, something. It felt like you know when I looked at him, I was like, something happened. Something just happened, you know. And 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 I think you know maybe he. It, and I remember thinking, leaving there, thinking to myself, it felt good to me. It really did feel good to me. And if it felt as good to to them as it did to me, then I'll I'll probably hear back. And I did, you know. And I went back a few months later in audition and played again through the stuff that they had written for, for the Voodoo Lounge record, those songs. Oh, right. And it was after that that they said that they'd like me to come on and record. And and that first gig must have been, obviously, they don't play small gigs. That must have been a big deal for you. Well, and being accepted by the, by, the, by the band, learning how they move around on stage and present themselves. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was great. Well, we did do a, we did a club date. They, that's back in the day where they would do a club date to prepare for the tour. We used to love, love it when they did those. Seen a yeah, couple of those. And, and we yeah. played a little club called RPM, which is no longer under that name in Toronto, where we'd been rehearsing. And so I just remember it being, uh, it was really loud <laughs> because, of course, we've been rehearsing in this huge school, you know, gymnasium. And suddenly we we're in this little club. And I'm sure Keith didn't turn down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really loud. But it was also, it was a great, it was great to, um, because, you know, you guys know, you're performers, you know, you can rehearse and rehearse and rehearse until you add that element of an audience. Yeah. You you don't know exactly where you sit. Mm-hmm. And everybody plays different in front of an audience, you know? Of course it's just it is. Yeah. You know, and so, so seeing that first glimpse of like, oh, that's what, that's what the circus is like when the circus really comes to town. <laughs> and so it was really great. And then the first game what, in, in, uh, at RFK Stadium in, uh, of course. in D.C. was... was oh, right, yeah. Because yeah, there's a whole other gear you wouldn't have seen in rehearsal, yes, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because, you know, the Stones are sort of famous. I and mean, it's it's part of their magic, mm-hmm. you know, of, of never being the same twice. You know, that some nights it really works and some nights it's a little bit rattly, you know. Well, it, the, the, you know, it moves around. The groove is is in their mood. I think it's inherent in the way they play rock and roll, which, you know, kind of takes us back to the blues thing. You don't hear, you know, Muddy Waters sing, I'm a man the same way every night. I think that's part of part of the charm of the Stones is that we're walking this edge. And if you want to have the kind of band that sounds great every night and everybody plays the same every night, that's beautiful, but that's a different thing. And in my opinion, rock and roll, it has to have that element of it could fall apart or, you know, or it, sometimes it almost does. And it creates a certain kind of excitement in the music. And I'm, 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 I'm convinced that that's part of what the audience, you know, digs. I mean, interesting things happen on stage. I think the audience actually goes, man, were you at the gig where Keith started yeah, yeah, yeah. me up in the wrong key? You know, I mean, I think that's, 
it creates a certain kind of yeah. excitement, you know. And 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 it, you know, rock and roll's got to be a little bit devil may care. Yeah, Keith uh, is the abs- ultimate personification of that, isn't he? So, absolutely, you know, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was a, I saw a TikTok clip the other day of, of him. Of, of just playing honky tonk women, and he's mm. playing the riff in a way that I've never ever heard it before, and it's beautiful. Yeah, and yeah. he probably doesn't even really know what he's doing, and he's gone into mm. a real triplet thing with it, and it's gorgeous. You know. Yeah, yeah. But so. is is he your Miles or is Mick? Um, neither one of them. It's a little bit different. Um, who do you look? Who are you keeping an eye on during the show? All who do you look them. at the most. All, all of them. And my monitor mix is a mess because. <laughs> I refuse to look back on this gig and and have people, you know, because Ronnie's on the other side of the stage, have somebody say, well, what was it like playing with Ronnie for 30 years? Well, I don't know. I didn't really hear him. So <laughs> he's loud. He's loud on my side because I want to be able to really interact with him. I, I need to be able yeah. to interact with him. And of course, he's got so, his whole thing going on with, with Keith as well, isn't he? Exactly, it? exactly. Yeah. You know, and so Keith definitely is standing right next to me. But Charlie, you know, I, I mean, when you said what you said about that, who's your, who's your Miles? I thought first of Charlie, you know, it's ensemble playing to me. It's like really letting all of that in. You know, it's if I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm you know if I'm locked with Charlie and I'm looking at Mick dance and he seems like he wants to you know he wants some more energy. Then I'm you know then I'm dealing with that. If Ronnie's taking a solo and and he's trying to stretch out more, then I'm dealing with that. If Keith finds some interesting thing that he hasn't played before and he's, you know, and he's working that out, then I'm dealing with him. It's like whoever is, and at the same time, gotta be listening to, to the drummer, gotta be listening to what's happening with the background in case I have to sing something. So it's just, it's really having my antenna out for, for everybody around. You know, yeah. and our good friend Matt, who we know, yeah, who, who you know, plays keys exactly. You know, he's dropping in some string part, or the saxophone player is playing, you know, um, Barry, Barry sax and playing a part that Bobby Keys played that's a bass line. So I'm locking with him on that. So it's just like, you know, whatever's happening, I'm trying to take it in and use it to inform what I play. Because I've noticed there's a couple of times where you get to really cut loose because. No matter how wonderful this is, you mm. have this technical facility, which is so mm. way above anything that's that would be required on this. You know game. what, man? Though, uh, uh, does that ever does there ever an, an itch that needs to be scratched? There. Well, you know, it's interesting, man, because I always feel like play for the song, whatever yeah. is best well, for the song. Of course. And if you're playing some jazz fusion, and what's best for the song is ripping, you know, ripping, you know, some yeah. fast stuff then I want to do that. But if it's not recall, called yeah. for, then I don't really want to do that. And me, you know, a friend of mine, you know, we have these sayings about what's in rock and roll and what's not in rock and roll. And like, like a chorus pedal. There's no chorus pedal in rock and roll. <laughs> and there's no drum solos in rock and roll. And there's no bass solos in rock and roll. So, yeah, you know, yeah, I get yeah. this kind of feature and in a way, I don't really play a bass solo because I'm still trying to play the bass line yeah. and for miss you, yeah, and yeah, and and kind of fe- be featured a little bit. So it's kind of back and forth, you know. It's kind of back and forth. A bass solo is like, okay, I'm not gonna play. I'm not gonna worry about playing the bass. I'm just gonna take a ride, yeah, you yeah. know. And so I feel like, okay, I'm gonna do this feature now. But really, there's no there's no bass solos in rock and roll. Yeah. Do you know what the problem with bass solos is? What kills bass solos for me anyway? Is that the bass has stopped. That's my point. There's that's no bass. Exactly ah, yeah, yeah no, that's, why playing, they, that's why they suck, because there's no yeah. bass. So the, so, uh, guitarists, you know, the guitarist, keyboard players, they've all got, yeah, they've got I bass literally, going on. I literally heard, <laughs> heard Marcus Miller say that a while back. He was saying, you know, the thing about a bass solo is you kind of got to play the bass part and take a solo at yeah. the same time. Because if you don't, you lose this big element that is kind of helping hold the music together. So that's really what I'm doing on the on the feature on this issue. I'm really what's, what, trying to play the bass. What's interesting What's interesting about you and what comes out in the documentary as well is is your love of song and how you're you know you're approaching your your own mm. soul band really yeah. that you're mm. you're getting together with elements great, of soul and blues. Oh, so great. How's that fantastic. album going? Yeah. You know, some of that stuff I wrote years and years ago is just 
putting it in a band's hands and and starting to to flush it out, which again I haven't done because you know there was a couple of years there where nobody left their house. So yeah. I'm just kind of putting that back together and uh, probably be next spring before I'm able to really you know get back and get back to it. But um, I'm excited about that too, man. I, I uh, it's a um, it's a different seat. It's a seat that I haven't you know haven't sat in much. I haven't. I haven't sang a lot um, as a, as a frontman, and you know, as you know, playing bass and singing is tough, and lyric writing, which is another thing that I'm 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 really uh, excited about, and uh, have a real love for, um, you know, people who can who can do that well. You know, Sting is chief among them. You know, so yeah, I'm excited about that, man, and just I just want to do more, and um, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, listen, we don't want the Stones to stop either. No. So somehow fit it all in, yeah. Daryl. That's the, um, that's and I, I, I'm hoping the Stones make a new, are making a new album at some point soon. I mean, there, yeah, there's, there are, are some rumblings. I mean, we've been we've recorded a lot of stuff over the last, you know, five, six, five, six years. Uh, so so Charlie's going to be on be, there too, yeah. Yeah, hopefully there's going to be, be some new music soon. I'm hoping so. And, uh, is, oh, your band, so is your band going to tour, Daryl? Uh, eventually, yeah, no, absolutely, man. You know, when I when I can, you know, find the right guys and and you know put them together in a room long enough to really create a create a sound, then it won't be the Daryl Jones project. Project it'll be a band. Daryl, we're going to be in LA on Sunday. We're playing on Sunday night. You don't have to say yes to this. You can cut this bit out of the of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, man. Where, where where are you guys playing? We're at the Orpheum. At the Orpheum. Yeah. Oh man, please, I'd love to come. I'd love to come. Oh man, we would love that. Yeah, I would love that. Yeah, I mean, this, it's 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 early Pink Floyd. It's the kind of mad psychedelic whimsy. Oh, dude, okay. And okay. some nice space rock in there and stuff. It's you know from when Pink Floyd were a pop group. And okay. A prog rock, okay. Proper prog rock band. Yeah, it? right, right. Uh, before Dark Side. Uh, up to we'd love to up see. To I would love to see. Echoes. You. Oh man, absolutely. I would. I wouldn't miss it. Yeah. We'll um, when we when we we'll sign off now, mm -hmm. and then then we can maybe uh, we can grab your email or yeah. something. Yeah. Man, I just have to say I love the podcast. I listened to uh, the conversation what? you guys have with Thomas Dolby. Amazing conversation, man. You guys oh, go wow. back. You guys, you know, seen you know the, the, the London scene. You guys seem <laughs> to, but I love that. I really love listening to that, man. I was a big fan of that uh, Flat Earth record, man. I think that's some incredible music man oh, you know, oh, thanks, that's yeah, great that's thank really, you so much man that's warms the cockles to yeah that. really did what you guys are doing man. well th thank you for coming on a good luck with the film good luck with the new project yeah. uh the, your own solo album and and long live the stones man thank you guys yeah. so much man really cheers thank you so much man it's been an absolute delight oh another great conversation i'm loving doing the rock on tour i love doing the rock on tour i love it but what's great is that's basically kind of all the stuff I would have wanted to say to him backstage it would just be annoyed about boring him you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> yes of course you get the chance yeah uh, but a really warm person really lovely person lovely and, lovely you know, guy, he lives yeah. in a, that, that Rolling Stones world I mean that's some huge city that they create isn't it when they yeah. when they go on the road it's 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 not just a, a band traveling is it it's a country traveling it's a campaign isn't it basically. it's a campaign that's what it is yeah <laughs> anyway so i think we we do we have another one before we uh, go home i'm not I sure think, i don't know there might be one more i think there's one more i'm not sure if not there's then there might have to be a break while we unpack our bags just for a week or something yeah and kind of a debrief <laughs> debrief whatever you call it yeah yeah don't get the bends will you <laughs> as you rise back into your uh, ordinary uh, civilian life unless we can get Tom York on <laughs> <laughs> oh, alright so thank you to Ian today who was our producer yes uh, thanks ben, Ian obviously at uh, Gimme Sugar and um, and everyone else who, who, who supports us out there and it makes us number one every week which we're yeah. so proud of we we check it out, don't we? With such we do, you know, we with, with such humility and uh, and warmth towards our, our listeners. Thank you so much. It's true. We love you all. So it's good night from me. It's good night from them. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.